Well, hey, I'm so glad that you guys are here this morning. Um, we're going to jump in and start a, a four-week journey, a series together talking about anxiety, depression, and the gospel. Anxiety, depression, and the gospel. And my hope for this morning um, is to create uh, a space that's safe, right? So that at least for those of us who are on this journey together for the next four weeks, um, at least maybe by the end of this morning, we really realize, like, we don't have to pretend. Like, if you wrestle with one of these realities, or, or possibly both of them, you don't have to pretend anymore like you don't. In fact, God's calling you out of that kind of foolishness to say, I want to use you, I want to use your story. I want to help you and walk with you. I want to be glorified as your life becomes a testimony before others to my goodness. We all, I think, are quite aware, even if you haven't done the research, just uh, by watching or by hearing, that uh, depression and anxiety have been on the rise significantly in the last 10 to 15 years in our society. Uh, some of it is somewhat parallel, the rise of um, social media and smartphones and some of the fractured uh, way that we're living in distraction. Uh, but whatever the case, it's on the rise. And COVID sped that up over the last year. There's been a huge uptick of depression and anxiety in teenagers, in high schoolers and middle schoolers, in homes. It's on the rise. And before I uh, share a little bit of my own personal story this morning with regard to this topic, I want to talk about what we mean, at least for this series, when I say depression and anxiety. All right? Because what I'm not talking about is, man, I'm so bummed out. I'm going to go watch a movie, right? Go for a hike and I'll be fine. That's not what I'm talking about. If you wake up, man, you're like, oh, I'm worried about this exam. I'm, I'm worried about this interview at work. Not kind of sure how that's going to go. My, my palms are sweaty, but I got some music I like on the drive-in, and I'm good to go. I'm going in confident. And then after it's over, you're fine. That's not what we're talking about. For the sake of this series, uh, we're looking at depression and anxiety as principally having two characteristics. One is that they're beyond your control. They're beyond your control. So maybe you feel like you're experiencing depression or anxiety, but if you, can, uh, if you can just pull yourself right out of that by going outside or by watching a funny movie or listening to music or having lunch with a friend, that's not what we're talking about. The second characteristic is this, is that it has a negative effect on your daily life. Your battle with depression or anxiety has a negative effect on your daily life. So it is out of your control, and it has a negative effect on your daily life. It has a negative effect on your relationships, on your friendships, on your work life, on your downtime. Right? We all, we all together, we understand? Beyond your control, negative effect on your daily life. Um, so when I was 27, when I was 27, Sharon and I were living in Waco, Texas. I was a full-time seminary student at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University there. And I just began to not feel good. I began to not feel good. And it, it was here and there, and then it would get more consistent. 
Um, and it just tended to get worse and worse and worse. I began losing weight, which I could most definitely stand to do right now. Uh, but I lost 20 pounds over the course of a spring. Got down, I was about 138, 140. And I remember thinking, I, you know, I, at some point I should probably go to the doctor. Um, but I had just decided, right, I'm probably dying. That's probably what this is. Um, I just, I, I was wrestling uh, with my mind. I remember particularly one night just feeling so, I would almost describe it as tremulous. Uh, just, just right on the very edge of, of understanding what, what was going on or what I was feeling. And I was young, I was healthy, I was fit. I was walking with the Lord, but man, I just began to, to, to spiral down, and I continued. So finally, I went and saw my doctor, and he uh, started me on a journey of tests, very unpleasant tests, tests often where myself and senior adults were the only ones in the waiting room, very invasive tests, trying to see what was going on in my body. And I took test after test after test as they got more serious and bigger and more serious and bigger. And they couldn't find, they couldn't find anything. And so I, I went in one afternoon to meet with the surgeon that was overseeing ultimately all of these tests. A devout Christian man, very good at what he did. Went into his practice and it was, uh, his office was very ornate, very calming, beautiful, um, redwood floors cherry wood beautiful decorations on the wall like he didn't get them at hobby lobby or kirkland's um calm music playing he took me into his actual personal office and came out from behind his surgeon desk and we sat across from one another and he said hey man tell me tell me what's going on with you and i said well i'm yeah i'm going through this and he said no i know all that i know all the medical stuff just tell me what's happening in your life you know, who are you? What's going on? So I just began to talk. I was like, hey, man, you know, I'm a, a full-time seminary student at Truett. Uh, I said I'm a, a full-time staff member at a local church. I'm a sergeant still in the Marine Corps Reserve, and our reserve unit's just been activated for Iraq. So, the, you know, I've got the trainings pulling me out a whole lot. So I'm trying to keep up with school while uh, being pulled out for training a lot more than I was used to um, and, and trying to maintain that while maintain uh, the ministry area that I was responsible for at church. He goes, Sounds like a lot. I said, yeah, it's fine, though. And I said, oh, and Sharon and I were, were walking through infertility. Um, so, you know, hoping to get pregnant. That's not happening. So we're going through some testing for that. And he said, sounds like you have a lot going on. I was like, yeah, but I can handle it. Right? I got that stuff under control. I just need to what, know what's going on here. And, uh, and I said, also, too, if I could just sleep at night. Because at night, it's like as the sun said, I would get more wound up. Any of you ever been there? As it got closer to bed, I would get more wound up. And I knew I was, I'm not going to sleep right. Sharon will be asleep for hours before I get to sleep. And there was this, just this sense of wrestling at night. And I told him, I said, you know what? I feel like if I can sleep at night, I can handle the day. If I can sleep at night, maybe my body can reset itself and can figure out what's going on here. And I can specifically remember a, a spring afternoon with the curtains open in the little tiny house we lived in uh, on, the, on the property that the church owned. It was a beautiful day. And I remember sitting there on the couch. I was watching some TV, and I just remember accepting, I'm dying. That's what this is. The doctors can't figure it out, but I know. I've always known this was going to happen. 
And so I was like, you know what? It's, and, for, and in that moment, I just made peace with it. I was like, you know, everybody gets one run. Some are longer, some are less. Um, God's moving me from the field to the stands. I'm going to cheer for the uh, kingdom difference maker still in the game. Right? But, but I'm dying. Uh, and so, so I'm sharing this with the doctor. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'm going to give you uh, a prescription that's going to help you sleep at night. Um, and then I want to see you again in 30 days. Because we haven't been able to find anything physically wrong with you. I said, all right. So he gave me this prescription. I, I, I went to pick it up, and it was for one milligram. I was like, man, he didn't take me serious at all. So I got home uh, that night, and Sharon was standing in the kitchen. I decided I was going to go to bed. I was like, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to take this little white pill, one milligram. Don't expect it to work. Um, and I went in there. I, I took the pill, climbed in bed. You know, I was like, man, I'm not going to sleep. I told this guy doesn't take me serious. I meant it when I said I need to, if I could just go to, and I was just gone, right? I woke up the next morning. I was like, oh, so that's what, that's what a full night's rest feels like. Within 30 days, I was feeling a whole lot better. And so I came back in for my follow-up appointment, and uh, he took me back into uh, his personal office again, came out from behind his desk, and we sat down. And he said, well, Matt, he said, how are you feeling? I said, man, Doc, I feel a whole lot better. I feel a lot better. I said, what, what was that pill you gave me? He said, man, that was just a chill pill. He said, you, you are battling anxiety. And I was like, anxiety? That's, isn't that a woman's disorder? Um, I, you know, I was like, surely you're mistaken. Um, I was like, maybe eighth grade girls? I, that's not what's going on in here. Um, he said, no, that, that is what's going on in there. He said, uh, you know, your brain is an organ like other organs, and it produces certain chemicals um, that help our body regulate stress levels in multiple areas uh, or domains of life that are outside of our control that trigger and set off our central nervous system and how we respond. And he said, anyone can only take so much. I was like, yeah, but I can take a lot more than most anyone's, Doc. Surely you must be mistaken. And he just laughed. He said, you'd be surprised how often I hear that from young guys. Like, this can't be it, you know. So I give him a rundown. Y'all, I'm young, uh, I'm, I'm fit, I'm in shape, uh, I'm healthy. He's like, yeah, but you're here. <laughs> you're in my office thanking me for 30 days of medication. It's like, you got that one on me, I guess. Um, so he, he gave me a 90-day uh, prescription uh, for this and talked to me a little bit about how anxiety works. And uh, by the end of that 90 days, I was forgetting to take it. I was that much better. And it was no joke in the beginning. There was a tremendous sense of fear that would seize me at night. It wasn't every night because it was outside of my control. But when it did, there was nothing I could do. Even in my mind when I thought, this, I know this isn't true. There was this overwhelming, foreboding sense that death was coming for me and there was nothing I could do about it. And I couldn't, I couldn't keep the rationale, but yeah, yeah, but death doesn't get the last word. Because that doesn't mean anything when you're in the middle of depression or anxiety and someone gives you such a helpful thought. I couldn't drive it away. And so, man, I made sure I took my little one milligram pill every single night. And when I knew I was getting a lot better was when I woke up the first morning and I had forgotten to take it. I was just so relaxed. I went out to bed. Well, 
that kind of reset my system. Years and years and years went by uh, with no real issues with this again. And then it started popping up again. It started popping up again, and I started struggling with it again. We had moved from Southern California um, to Texas. And finally, you know, I, I didn't go see a doctor right away because I like for things to get immeasurably worse first. So uh, I waited until I was just sort of in terrible shape, and I went in to see uh, a doctor. Um, and she was phenomenal. She was about mine and Sharon's age, several years out of medical school, very young. And we just, uh, we began to talk, and she began to talk to me about what was going on. I told her what had happened before. She listened to my story, gave me the same script, said, if this works good on you, right, and you don't have any weird side effects from it, let's start there. And try this. Ran a few tests. Everything came back clear. By this point, I'm getting irritated. Right? Because I can't shake this woman's disorder that I feel like I have. I'm just kidding, guys. I, I know it's not a woman's disorder, right? I'm up here saying I struggle with it. So um, after going back in a couple of times to her, she said, Hey, this, this prescription does the trick in the moment. But it's like a, it's, it's a Band-Aid. It's not something you're meant to be on long term. I was like, I don't need anything long-term. There's nothing wrong with me. And so she said, well, uh, you know, you keep having to come back in for this. So she said, would you be open to me putting you on something that you just take once a night for an extended period of time, and let's let your, your brain actually heal? And she talked to me again about the, the brain as an organ that can become unhealthy just like any other organ can. Let's give your, your brain time to heal. And I said, like, how long? Like six months? She said, three years. I was like, oh. It's like a death sentence. Three years on medication, but I trusted her. And I said, all right, let's do it. So I came back in a while later. I was feeling great. And uh, I said, hey, I feel great. I said, I think it's been, I think we're at the three-year mark. Can I get off this? She said, it's been 13 months. So, no, you can't get off of it yet. You said you'd do the three. Let's do the three. I said, okay. So, um, Three years went by, and I was just about to start my doctorate, and I went in quite filled with joy and delight and said, hey, it's time now. I've done my part, so let's get off this thing. And she said, tell me, what's happening? So we talked a little bit, and I said, hey, I'm getting ready to start my doctorate, and this going on, we're looking at adoption, and she's like, let's do one more year and see where we are. So I'll just say, like, I'm still on it, y'all. Now, I, uh, I went off this year because I'm supposed to graduate, finish school, and so I'm at least going to give it a run. And I asked her, I said, hey, can I get off this? I don't want to be on medication. I want to take medication. She said, can you get off it? Yes. Should you get off it? We won't know. We won't know until you get off and, and we see what happens. So I, I just I share my story with you very openly here going online, being podcasted, to just say, we've got to stop pretending like we don't struggle with this stuff. Because depression and anxiety thrives in hiddenness. And part of the problem is that we just don't like to talk about it. People won't share their stories. And so you tend to suffer in isolation and you think you're the only one. But if we're going to exercise some courage and try to let our lives be about the gospel of Jesus Christ and not ourselves, like 
Somebody may look down at me or think less of me because I have to take a pill. I don't care. Maybe there's not a pill to fix their issue. Right? But it fixes mine for right now. But I can tell you this. When we can let our lives be about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God, then we don't have to try to impress people anymore. Then we don't have anything left to prove. And we can start living for Him and not the applause of others. We can start living for Him and not the the likes and the hearts on social media. We can be honest. I don't know why I struggle with this, but I do know this. It's humbled me. It's made me far more empathetic. I'm naturally as empathetic as a cluster bomb. That's just sort of how God wired me. I'm like, well, fix yourself and let's roll on. That's just how my mind works. But this has made me empathetic. It's made me able to sit and listen and relate to people who are going through something that has a hold of them that they can't fix through willpower. I know some of it for me, some of it's genetics and family history, which families never talk about, right? You start to have a problem, you start talking to your parents when they're old, and you're like, hey, you left something out growing up. And I had to spend a decade figuring it out. Why didn't you say you had this issue? Right? Some of us genetics, some of us family history, some of us personality and how I'm wired. I do know two things, though. That when I'm walking through a season of it, it's beyond my control. And it has a negative effect on my daily life. At times, Sharon, Sharon tells me I'm a hypochondriac. And I just want you to know, that's not true. But if I have something, I feel like I'm dying from it. Your throat is sore, I've got throat cancer, right? You've got a headache, I've got a brain tumor, right? Your low back hurts because you carried a refrigerator, and I've got some sort of degenerative nerve disease that will have me in a wheelchair next week and dead by April. I don't know why it's that way. I can laugh at it. And it doesn't bother me for you to laugh at it. Give me a good wound, a through and through, or sucking chest wound, or or maybe a a knife cut. That doesn't bother me for some reason. You know? The thought of crashing in a plane, it doesn't bother me. Something about sickness just gets to me. I don't like it. I can't see it. I can't fight it. That's my issue. What's, What's yours? Right? And I'm not going to be some kind of psycho babble Dr. Phil. Some of you are good. You don't wrestle with depression. You don't wrestle with anxiety. But you know people who do. And it's time that the church is an open and safe place to talk about this. And to say that for sure the root of yours may be uncontrolled, unchecked, unrepentant, unconfessed sin. That scripture says causes your bones to rot away. It eats at you. For some of you, that's absolutely true. And you need to confess that to God and repent of it and turn away from it. And you need to share with a friend at least. Some of you have been long forgiven from something, but you've never healed from it because you won't tell anyone else. And scripture says that when we confess to one another, we're healed. Times of refreshing and renewal come. Find someone safe, but let them know. It's life-changing to tell someone everything you are and have done and struggle with, and they love you anyway. But 
there are going to be times where that's not enough. That walking with God toward healing and wholeness means finding a really good therapist. Finding a, an educated, licensed Christian therapist who loves the Lord and loves Jesus and walks with him. And also is a certified counselor and can meet with you regularly and help you process some of what you've been through. Some of what you're struggling with that you don't understand how to get through. Some of you need to see a doctor. A good doctor. And just talk with them. So I just want to say from this first morning, like it's all on the table because God is the sovereign God of all of creation. And it's not prayer or medicine. It's not scripture, scripture or therapy. For some of you, it may be all of it. It's always going to be prayer and scripture. We, we're all commanded to be repentant of our sin regularly and to feed ourselves on God's word. But sometimes moving past anxiety and depression for you will require more. And I want to encourage you to go after that. We'll be rolling out some resources that we feel like are helpful and can be trusted over the next three weeks as we continue in this series. But I, right now I'd like us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in the New Testament. And I want to read a few verses about the Apostle Paul. While you're finding 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll, I'll tell you this too. Man, if you battle depression or you battle anxiety, find one or two good friends to talk to about it who are just always open to you. For some reason, maybe it's the fact that I, I grew up with land and grew up outside a lot, but uh, when those nights would come for me, I had to get, get out. And I would leave Sharon a little note or, you know, there's a point in time in our journey where I just texted her, right? You know, phones were changing. I was like, I'd just leave her a text now. Say, hey, I'm going. I got to go walk. I got to get outside. But I've got a couple of friends that I can call. One of them's a doctor, so he's extra helpful. But I can call anytime, anywhere, and they're going to answer. And they know. They know that from time to time something triggers this, and I'm going to struggle. Find you some friends. Now, let's look at what the Apostle Paul writes here uh, in verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read straight through it. And then what I want to do is address three common myths that feed depression, and anxiety. Verse 1, chapter 12, 2 Corinthians. I must go on boasting. Now, let me say before we move on, Paul's writing this in the context of false apostles coming into the city of Corinth, claiming apostleship without the direct connection to Jesus Christ and the calling from God to that office in the first century church. And they would often be condescending toward Paul because he was kind of lowly in many ways. He didn't speak eloquently. And so there were questions in Corinth, and, and Paul's making a robust yet humble defense of his apostleship. He's just said in verse 30 that he will boast of the things that show his weakness. He'll let other people talk about how awesome he is, but he'll boast of his weaknesses. Look at verse 1 again. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, the Apostle Paul is talking about himself here, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise 
and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Paul says, I had this experience, but I'm not going to share the beauty of that experience. I'm not going to boast in that. I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. Verse 6, even if I should choose to boast, I would be a fool. Because I would be speaking, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. I love this, Paul, Paul basically says, look, if I wanted to brag on myself, I could because I'm awesome. But I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I could brag on that experience because all that I've just told you is true. But I'm not going to do it because I don't want people thinking more of me than should be thought. Or because of the surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. For when I am weak, I am strong. Let me point out as we deal with the text here, very briefly, three common myths. We could have done more, but for the sake of time, let's narrow down to three that I think are the most common that we tend to believe when we're going through depression and anxiety that not only do we believe, but they feed then and add fuel to the depression and the anxiety. If you'll look back at verse 6, back at verse 6, the Apostle Paul says that he, he could have boasted. He could have boasted in his apostleship and his relationship with God. He's like, all that I said to you was true. God has called me. God has gifted me. Right? God has commissioned me. I was taken up into paradise. Whether in body or out of body, I don't know. But I know I was taken there and shown inexpressible things. And I heard inexpressible things. Things not permitted for human beings to speak. That was a real experience. He says, I could have boasted in it, but I'm not going to. The Apostle Paul was very likely the second most influential life ever lived behind Jesus Christ. Two-thirds of the New Testament, he wrote, there are more orphanages, children, hospitals, streets, cities, churches named after Paul than any other individual. Yet Paul is wrestling with a thorn in the flesh, which seems to produce anxiety in his life. And I want you to look back real quick, uh, flip back a couple of pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because I want you to know Paul as a human being, not just an apostle. Look back at, at uh, did I say 1 Corinthians? I meant 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. Flip back just a couple of pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. 
Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under, now listen to this language, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Sound like depression to you? Absolutely sounds like depression. Paul is saying, as we were trying to do God's work, we were under such tremendous pressure for such a prolonged period of time, experiencing so many hardships beyond our ability to continue to endure so that we despaired of life itself. He says, we didn't want to go on living. We didn't want to go on living. Some of you have been there. This is Paul. Verse 9, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So for Paul, in life or in death, he belongs to God. He, verse 10, that is God, has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Before I finish verse 11, if you struggle at times, you got to ask people to pray for you. You've got to do that. I'm very careful, very careful who I ask to pray for me. But there are some I reach out to. People that I know will pray for me. People that I know are going to love me anyway. People that I know aren't going to judge me. You need to find some people like that. Paul's saying, as you help us by your prayers... Then many, the end of verse 11, will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. He, he's, he's not saying they're going to give thanks because of us. They're going to give thanks because God has moved on behalf of the prayers of his people. Here is myth number, number one. Myth number one is if I'm right with God, I'm not going to suffer much. Yeah, some of you can laugh hard at that. Some of you laugh your way all the way out to the car when we finish thinking about that. If I'm close with God, I'm not going to suffer much. But you hear this put out there. And let's be honest, let's level the playing field because I can tell you, I've had moments, and I know that to be absolutely theologically garbage. But there have been moments where I'm like, have I offended you? Right? I mean, because, and, and I know in my mind, I have to preach the gospel to myself. But that's a myth that depression and anxiety can, can keep us trapped in, and then it in return feeds the depression and anxiety. Friends, suffering is a result of the fall. Everything suffers, creation itself groans. The book of Romans tells us. Our bodies, day by day, are wasting away, the Apostle Paul said. It's part of the current human condition. And part of what Paul says is what was given to him, and I, this gift language is so unique. He's like, this intense struggle, this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan was gifted to me by God that I might remain humble in light of the power of his work in my life. It was given him and allowed in his life 
not just though he was close to God, but specifically because he was so close to God. And had been given such significant, such significant access and experiences in God. And he, he attributes this messenger to Satan. But he sees behind us the sovereign control of God over everything in life, including his. And Paul attributes ultimately the pain and suffering he's walking through here that he leaves undescribed and unnamed in terms of its specific nature. He attributes it ultimately to the goodness of God overseeing his life. There's no pain or suffering that we as followers of Christ are immune to, right? Nothing. Nothing. But we do have a power by God's grace in Christ to walk through it differently. Let's look at one more myth. Myth number two. God can't use me if I'm broken. Ever felt that way? Like not broken. We all know we're broken. We just feel like we're broken enough that he can't really do anything significant with us. Ever felt that way? Look at verses 8 and 9a, the beginning of 9 again. Paul says in verse 8, three times he pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. That may be three specific times. Three can also just stand for continual pleading. He regularly pled with God to take this away from him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect. Here's what Jesus said, guys. He said, no. Right? On the bumper sticker, he just says, not now. But in Scripture, sometimes he just says, no. I'm not going to take it away from you. Because my grace is sufficient to see you through it, and my power will be made perfect in your weakness. Made perfect is a, a, an interesting phrase there. That the coupling of Paul's submission to God in this pain and suffering results in the perfection of the power of Christ and his weakness. The truth is, God only uses broken people. I mean, have you looked at the clods in the Bible? From Genesis to Revelation, none of us would choose them for a starter team. Partly he uses the broken because we're all broken. He also uses the broken because brokenness can lead us to a kind of humility and responsiveness to the, to the Lord. Where our answer is yes. Paul pleads and Jesus says no. One New Testament scholar said this, that Christ's grace is inseparable from his power. God's grace is inseparable from his power. To be shown one is to be given the other. To be shown God's merciful, loving, generous grace is to be given his power. To be shown God's unending, all-sufficient power is to be given his grace as well. Often I think we've got to have our stuff together before God will use us. And that's just not how he works. We have a, um, we have a volunteer opportunity coming up Sunday um, March 21st, that evening, called We Serve. We Serve, and it's just for anyone that's, that's interested in serving on Easter morning. We're going to do two services Easter morning, 9 a.m., a mask-only service, and 10.30 will be mask-optional. But we're going to need a transition team to reset the room and make sure bathrooms are ready to go. We'll need some people in the parking lot. We'll need 
um, greeters, we need some other things. If you're interested, you don't have to be perfect, right? You don't have to have all your stuff together. Part of what lifts us up as we do our part in cooperation with God when we're walking through depression and anxiety, part of what lifts us, lifts us up is to get our eyes off ourselves. Stop wallowing around watching Hulu and eating ding-dongs and get out where God's doing something and give our time to something else, right? You don't have to be perfect, but if you're interested, we'd love to have you here. It's just an interest meeting, five to seven, child care and dinner. Here's a trick, young parents. It's sort of like a free date, right? So sign up and come. There are other ways you can sign up, but right now, uh, John Fallis, who's our Director of Connections, will follow up with you. You can just write, we serve, anywhere on your connection card. We serve. Write that, circle it, and, uh, and John will know as we go through those on Monday to follow up and get you connected there. But you and I need to lift our eyes off ourselves and not believe this myth that until we've got it all together, and sometimes it's worse. Well, I feel like I've got it together, but my spouse doesn't. I feel like I've got it together, my spouse is doing pretty well, but our kids should be checked into the nut house, right? Just give God who you are, where you are, and let him deal with what he does with that and how he uses you. Last myth, myth number three, God is not near me when I'm hurting. God is not near me when I'm hurting. Look at the latter half of verse 9. Paul says, in light of Jesus' answer to him, he said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ, don't miss this, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Do you hear the closeness, the intimacy of that relationship described? I'll boast in my weakness, in the anxiety, in the depression, in the suffering, in the pain. I've asked, God hasn't taken it away. But I'm going to boast in my weakness, and in doing so, I know, I know that Christ's power will rest on me. Depression and anxiety have a unique way of making you feel like there's a vast chasm between you and God. They have a unique way of making you feel isolated, even when you're in a room full of people, even when you're standing speaking to a room full of people there's a great aloneness and loneliness that's felt in these but here's the truth the truth is that God is always present when his people hurt God is always present in the pain in fact church he is most often more present in the pain and closer to you whether or not you feel it here's the thing about feelings your feelings are real they're just not reliable I'm going to say that every single week. Your feelings are real. They're just not reliable. Your feelings are real. They're just not reliable. Your feelings are genuine. They're just not trustworthy. You can't build your life on what you feel. So our emotions have been affected by the fall as well. The upside-down nature of the kingdom, the counterintuitive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's truth, is God is often most close when he feels most distant to us. When we're hurting, God draws near. John Ortberg said this. He said, this moment 
Speaking of suffering and pain, this moment can be the greatest moment in your life because this moment is where you can meet God. Can I say right now where you're sitting, this is a sacred moment as we're gathered in the presence of God Almighty with His Spirit among us. This moment is the moment that you can meet God, that you can meet with God wherever you are. Paul's pain led him deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one wants depression or anxiety, right? You'd have to be some kind of masochist. Say, if I could just have a good prolonged season of depression, that would be good. An excuse to eat more ice cream. Nobody wants it, but tens of millions of Americans are suffering with it. And it's time for us as the church to just take off our masks and stop pretending and say, we're imperfect. Every aspect, every domain of who we are has been affected by the fall. That's what total depravity, the theological term total depravity means. Your body's been affected, your mind's been affected, your will, your emotion, your volition, everything. Everything has been affected by sin. Henry Nouwen, and I'll just tell you this, anything you can get your hands on that Henry Nouwen wrote, you should read. And many of you will be happy to know most of them are very small little books. But Henry Nouwen wrote with a depth and a transparency and an apparent relationship to, to pain and questions and doubts like few people in the last hundred years. In a little book called Can You Drink the Cup? Can You Drink the Cup? He says that we make pain worse when we compare ourselves to others. Listen to Nowen speak. We often compare our lives with others, trying to decide if we are better or worse off. And now he wrote this before social media. With social media, this is a game you can't win, right? Because somebody out there always is going to make more money, be prettier, be faster. Kids are going to behave better online. So you can't win this game. But such comparisons do not help us much. We have to live our life, not someone else's. We have to dare to say, this is my life. The life given to me by God. And this is the life I have to live as well as I can. My life is unique. Nobody else will ever live it. I have my own history, my own family, my own body, my own way of thinking, speaking, and acting. Yes, I have my own life to live. Now one was brilliant. Professor at Harvard left that to become a minister and caretaker um, at a center that cared for adults with special needs who lived there and he lived and cared with them. And after his death, he allowed a close friend to release in print some of the reality of Nowen's life, that Nowen had battled homosexuality all of his life. From his earliest remembrances, his sexual attraction was for the same sex. And he could never change it. He couldn't battle it away. He couldn't pray it away. He couldn't read scripture and make it go away. So he had just decided to, to press into the Lord and to give himself fully to God and to his work all of his life. To remain single intentionally. To practice abstinence sexually. And to find his fulfillment in Christ alone. 
Did that mean seasons of suffering? Absolutely. But now and left us a beautiful witness in his writings about what it means to draw close to God. He can speak to the heart and the mind simultaneously like almost no one else I know. You only have one life to live and it's yours. Don't live it hiding. Don't live it pretending. Let's draw together. I want you to spend this week thinking about where you are in relation to these topics. Maybe you've got friends, like I said, maybe you're good. But you've got friends that you know are struggling with it. Talk to them, invite them. There are all kinds of chairs in here that people should be sitting in. And let's let God over the next few weeks lift our eyes, give us the hope of gospel, and also allow us to receive some tangible resources that will point us in directions of help as we look at others in Scripture for the next few weeks who have gone through these battles and we watch how God relates to them. Let's stand this morning and pray and then we'll continue to worship and respond to God.